The Lord be with you. Let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Gracious and loving Father, we thank Thee for the gift of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, and for His presence in the Holy and Blessed Sacrament, that Thou hast counted us worthy, despite our unworthiness, to be bearers of the presence of Thy Son in this world, to become living tabernacles of His divine life. We thank Thee for this precious gift which nourishes us, strengthens us. We pray, O Lord, that Thou wouldst open our mind to the truth of Thy Word and the faith of Thy Church as we discern this blessed and holy and life-giving sacrament. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. um, Firstly, I want to say that we have received a few emails um, from people Uh, saying that they are listening along uh, in different parts of the United States and Canada. And so I'd like to send uh, greetings to to all of them who are listening. We're pleased that you're listening. And uh, it is a blessing to us to know that that in some way um, these classes are touching uh, your your lives as well. And um, so, uh, so welcome to those who are here physically and to those who are here uh, through uh, modern technology. So um, we are beginning today uh, by looking at, um, at the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. Now, I'm going to try to fit this into four hours. Um, <coughs> I may not be able to. No, I got water right here. Thank you. I may not be able to. It may be that this will overflow into the next class a little bit, okay? Um, this is not a, a simple topic, okay? In one way, it is a simple topic. Jesus gives us this gift. It's the gift of himself, the gift of his life, that he may dwell in us and we in him. Um, but in another sense, um, it is there, it's not simple. Being that we are Anglicans, however... When we are going to look at a topic like the Holy Eucharist, where are we going to begin? The Bible, the Holy Scripture, absolutely. As Anglicans, when we are looking at anything, um, we, we must look at it from, firstly, Holy Scripture as God's Word written. And secondly, to help us understand Um, some of those scriptures to understand how they were received by the faithful in the early church and the church east and west, Um, what will we look to? Holy tradition. And in particular, the writings of the early church fathers. How did the earliest Christians receive what the scriptures say and what Jesus himself taught and the apostles proclaimed regarding Holy Communion? Okay, And then thirdly, we will look to the Anglican formularies and some of the writings um, of uh, some of the great Anglican writers. This is how we do theology as, as Anglicans. We don't say, well, you know, it's what the Pope says or the teaching magisterium of the church. Nor do we say, well, it's what this particular convention or assembly says 
or no, it's what this particular charismatic teacher uh, teaches, or no, it's how I interpret the Bible privately uh, by the Holy Spirit, or it's what Father Michael, Mc oh no, it is that last one, it's what Father Michael McKinnon says, no, it's not that um, uh, that we do. We look firstly to Holy Scripture as the Word of God written. We secondly look to tradition as the lens that enables us to, to look even more deeply into the wonder and the depth of God's Word and the power of His Word. And then thirdly, to look at some of the writings of the great uh, Anglican authors as they, in their own day, articulated the position of post-Reformation Anglicanism uh, regarding its position built firstly on Holy Scripture and secondly on Holy Tradition. Okay, So um, we're going to begin with, with Holy Scripture. So if you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 16. Well, if you're using that particular Bible. <laughs> if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 186 in the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth. Um, God used particular circumstances um, to bring about within the life of the church the New Testament. Uh, in particular, much of the New Testament outside of the gospel narratives themselves were written for what purpose? The gospel narratives are written in particular to reveal to the world the good news of Jesus Christ, to reveal his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection and ascension into heaven and to speak of the promise of the Spirit. But what are the rest of the letters of the New Testament primarily written in response to? Yep, controversy that has arisen in, in the church. Okay, um, If something wasn't particularly controversial, it's not uh, necessarily addressed. Okay, So, Paul, the Apostle, is writing to the church in Corinth um, regarding the, the faith, the apostolic faith, um, and their need to adhere to this faith, and is also writing to them to correct certain things where they have gone um, askew. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Okay, so we're going to stop right there and first begin to unpack this. Because this is perhaps one of the most important lines in all of Scripture regarding what we believe as Christians regarding the Holy Eucharist. 
Because to me, it actually does away with a lot of the arguments of is it consubstantiation, is it transubstantiation, is it transcentiation, is it some sort of other-ation, okay? Um, uh, Paul is saying to them, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The first thing I want to point out is that some have said, some have argued um, in the Protestant tradition, and even some low church Anglicans, and even someone as great as, uh, as Richard Hooker, for example, one of the great uh, Anglican writers, that, uh, and some believe he was taken out of context here, but you, I'll leave that to you if you read Richard Hooker. Um, uh, some have argued that, look, um, it's just bread and wine when it's uh, you know, on the altar or on the holy table. Um, it's just bread and wine. And, and, it's, and it, there's nothing really special uh, about it except that it's symbolic of, of Christ's uh, presence within his people. Okay? And um, they would argue that uh, really it's in receiving it and receiving it, uh, this symbol, in faith, that for that person they are being in some sense spiritually fed. And they make the argument that Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. So this is my body comes after the word eat, which comes after the word take. And so some have made the argument that it becomes his body in some sort of spiritual sense or his blood in some sort of spiritual sense, primarily in the partaking of it, okay, but not in what takes place uh, here, okay. So apart from receiving it, there's no particular presence of Christ, okay, my response to that, you know, one of humility, uh, but it's an ancient, ancient um, uh, Greek word called hogwash, okay, uh, hogwash, because Paul makes it very clear here, um, and this goes back to the understanding of the Jews as well. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When do, we, when do we bless the cup and break the bread? Before. Right. When it's on the holy table. When it's on the altar. It is then that we bless it. It is then that we break it. It is then that it is consecrated. It is then that it is set apart by the power of the words of Jesus in the power of the Spirit coming upon the elements. Okay? The cup that we bless, is it not a participation? The bread that we break, is it not a participation? So it is already, albeit in a mystical way, mystical doesn't mean fantasy, okay? Um, it is already a participation in the body and blood of Christ when it is on the holy altar. 
and is blessed and set apart when it's blessed and broken. It's already participation. Now we have to look at this word participation. Okay. It is sometimes translated communion. Um, it is sometimes translated fellowship. Okay. So the cup that we bless, the bread that we break, is it not a communion, a participation, a fellowship in the body and blood of Christ? Okay. Now this word in Greek, does anyone know what the word here in Greek is? Koinonia, the word koinonia. The word koinonia, meaning participation in or communion in, where the word communion comes from, by the way, um, or participation, communion, fellowship in, um, is a very strong Greek word. It has the same root as a medical term, actually, of when a man and a woman we hope a man and a wife, a uh, husband and wife, by the way, come together in spirit, in, in sexual union. Okay? When a man and a woman, particularly a husband and wife, but Paul even says otherwise too, but when a man and a woman come together in sexual union, what does the Bible say about the two of them? Yeah, they are no longer two, but they are one. They are no longer two, but they are one. They are one flesh. So we literally, when we come together in that way with another person, we are becoming one with them. And a whole other reason why you should be married before you do that. Okay? Um, but that's a whole other lecture. <laughs> okay? Let, me, let it suffice. If you're doing that and you're not married, knock it off. Okay? Now we can move on. All right. Um, all right. Well <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, someone should write this stuff down, I tell you. Um, <laughs> so, um, so if you think of that, that the word koinonia is an intimate union, an intimate communion, an intimate participation, so intimate that, the, that Paul is using the language in the Greek of a word that is the greatest level of intimacy known to man when a man and a woman come together and become one so that they are no longer two but one flesh. Okay? All right. Um, so Paul is using this. So what Paul is saying is in writing to the Corinthians, the cup of blessing which we bless. First of all, it's a cup that's filled with blessing. It's a cup of blessing. But it's also a reference, by the way, to the, the whole uh, Seder meal, which is why if you haven't read Christ in the Passover by Rosen, it's not a long book, but where you can get the video, which I think is even better, um, um, get that and, and, and read it what each cup is and what it represents and why Jesus takes the cup after supper has great significance, which cup he takes, because it was the one that was considered to be the, the cup of blessing and the lamb's blood, and hot water would be added to it so that they would graphically 
um, think of the sacrifice of the blood so it would be warm when they drank it and so forth. And it's that cup that he says, of that cup he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Okay? So, but it's already a cup of blessing. And he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, so something is going on here, it is being blessed just as we were all blessed just now. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? That is... This cup which we bless is a most intimate communion or a most intimate fellowship or a most intimate participation in the blood of Christ. I mean, it's extraordinary if you ponder the depth of what Paul is conveying here. I mean, when he, when he uses the most, intimate, the most intimate thing known to mankind, the coming together of two, where they are no longer two but one, and uses that to refer to the sacrament. It's absolutely incredible and mind-blowing, okay, that he, would, that he would do that. And so if we remember that as the church, we are the what of Christ, Right, but we're also the, he's the groom, we are the bride of Christ. The church collectively is the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. The Eucharist is, in Paul's mind and in the mind of the early patristics, is the wedding banquet. It's the wedding feast. Okay? And what what he's saying here is that we who are the bride of Christ are entering into a most intimate communion, fellowship, participation, koinonia with the groom. So that we who are the bride are joined to him and we are no longer two, but one with Christ. So that we are no longer two, but one with Christ. That's the word that Paul uses here. Okay? Um, hugely important if you want to have a biblical understanding of the sacrament. Okay? So that we who are the bride literally are joined. By the way, this feeds into the whole theology, which I might speak of later, that baptism is like spiritual marriage. Christ. We become part, collectively, we become part of the bride of Christ. Okay? Two people on their wedding day are joined. They are spiritually one. How is that spiritual union lived out, realized, nurtured, nourished, strengthened, manifested, etc.? Come on, don't be bold. Through what? Yeah. I was going to go with a word like sex, but okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's a little formal, but all right. Right? So the two become spiritually one on their wedding day, and that spiritual union is nourished, nurtured, um, matured, lived out, realized, expressed, etc., through the physical union. Right? Paul says that if you are spiritually united, that you should be doing what? Having sex. 
Well, those people listening now, they must be like, woo, this is like a rated R class, right? Due to the sexual contact of the <laughs> content of the following speech. Um, right, Paul assumes that if two are spiritually one, that they're having sex. In fact, he says, if you're going to fast from it, don't, don't fast very long from it, because that is the physical living out of your spiritual union. Paul's bringing this into baptism is our spiritual marriage to Christ as members of the bride of Christ. We are, joined, we are collectively the bride. We are joined to Christ who is the groom. And Holy Communion is, and I mean no disrespect by this, and I mean nothing funny about this, but I really truly believe this is what Paul is saying. If baptism is marriage, Eucharist is sex. It helps us to nurture, nourish, strengthen, realize, express, live out. Give me something else. <laughs> the spiritual union which we have by faith and baptism in Jesus Christ. Right. Is everyone with me? Does every, everyone understand? Okay. So, when you read the cup of blessing, which is a particular cup, by the way, which we bless, is it not a participation? Read koinonia. What he is saying, this is like when people are like, oh, why, do, why do you have to be baptized to receive communion? They don't understand any of this. Having communion before being baptized is like having sex before marriage. You have to be spiritually one before you can live that out physically. Right? Um, and so when you see this, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? He is saying, is it not a most intimate communion, union, fellowship, participation in the blood of Jesus. So intimate. It's equated to when a husband and a wife come together in sexual intimacy and are no longer two but one. We, the bride of Christ, are the body of Christ because we're joined to him through the Eucharist. Okay. Um, and this is why we're not to abstain from the receiving of the Eucharist either. Um, the bread, he says the same thing about the bread. The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, a couple things I want to point out, though, is that clearly this goes way beyond, way beyond the uh, theology that developed, particularly at the time of the Protestant or Continental Reformation, that Holy Communion is purely symbolic. Everything happens inwardly, spiritually, and this is a symbol of, of that, that we are being fed spiritually by Christ. So we enact this, this, uh, uh, this meal uh, as a way of expressing outwardly what is going on inwardly. They don't see the connection because they separate the sacraments from the Incarnation. We are a body-soul creature. What we do physically affects us spiritually, and what we do spiritually affects us physically. You cannot... That's why when people say, well, you know, I cheated on my wife, but she doesn't know about it, and it's really... I'm really suffering with it, but what she doesn't know doesn't... You brought your wife into the bed with the other woman because you are never separated from her. You are never separated from her. Okay. Um... 
But Paul, so while it goes way beyond this idea that it's just symbolic, which is to say that there's a separation here between the sacred things that are physical or tangible and the spiritual is, is Gnostic. Okay, the fact is, is we are an incarnational religion. Okay, the divine, it, God manifests himself, his presence, his love, his grace, his mercy, his healing, his goodness, his truth, etc., um, etc., et through the created order, not next to the created order or in opposition to the created order, but through the created order. What's the ultimate example of God manifesting his presence, his being, his love, his truth, his goodness, his grace, uh, his forgiveness, his healing through the created order? Jesus, the incarnation. He's the ultimate sacrament. If you don't understand the incarnation and really emphasize it, then you can't really understand Christian theology. I've said to my brother-in-law, who I, I love dearly, when we, we have, had, well, more so in the past, these debates, but I, you know, what I, what I said to him is that what you don't understand in holding what is the equivalent of, of Baptist theology, what you don't understand is that you're, you're, what you're saying is we believe in the incarnation, but it has no implication upon our theological thought. The incarnation is the source of everything. Okay, um, in how we understand. So Paul's saying big stuff here, but while it goes way beyond this idea of symbol and separating somehow, this is real, what goes on spiritually, the physical is, is just symbolic and not real. Okay, while it goes way beyond that, okay, which by the way, people will say is where Calvin came down on it, and I think he gets a bad rap a little bit. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not a big fan of John Calvin either, but I do think he gets a bad rap a lot. I don't think he was very far from patristic thinking. I just want that to be on the record in this particular instance. Okay. Um, While it goes way beyond that, it's also very clear here that in the doctrine of transubstantiation, which Rome teaches, the bread and the wine go to naught. They, they are replaced. The substance of bread and the substance of wine are replaced by the, by the spiritual um, and actual body and blood of Christ. So they are literally overthrown and replaced. Okay? Paul says here, no way. He's very clear that the bread which we break is a participation in the body of Christ. So it is bread that we are breaking. It is wine that we are blessing. They have not gone to naught, to use old language. Okay? So transubstantiation would not go along with this. Okay? Where they go to naught. So let me teach briefly on transubstantiation because there's a lot of people, sadly, that simply think that transubstantiation means that the Roman Catholic Church believes that Christ Jesus is truly present in the Holy Eucharist. Well, if that's all that transubstantiation means, we have no disagreement with them. Unfortunately, it's not exactly what it means. A friend of mine says there's three things you have to know about 
the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist in the Roman Catholic Church. Number one, it's an unexplainable mystery. It cannot be comprehended or explained. Number two, we've explained it. And number three, it's a dogma, so you better believe it. <laughs> okay? Um, and what it teaches is uh, Aristotle, Plato's uh, um, disciple, Aristotle had a theory called the hylomorphic theory. Hylomorphic theory. In his hylomorphic theory, he said, everything has substance and everything has accidents. The closest thing to understanding accidents would be like characteristics. Okay? Everything has substance and everything has accidents. As long as something continues to be, its substance can never change. The only thing that can change is its accidents. So, for example, be simplistic now. Don't get technical on me. If you have a, a big tree, what's the substance of the tree? Wood. The substance of the tree is wood. What's its characteristics? Well, its bark may be rough, rough exterior, may have several branches. Cut it down and make it into this pew here. Has its substance changed? No, it's what? Right, it's wood. What's changed are the accidents. It is no longer tall with a rough exterior. It is now long, not tall, it's smooth, it doesn't have branches, etc., etc. Chop it up and make it into a tabernacle. Has its substance changed? No, still wood. What has changed? The accidents. This was Aristotle's hylomorphic theory. Well, what happened was, is Aristotle was rediscovered um, uh, in the Middle Ages by um, the coming, actually, of Muslims through Spain. And uh, a great thinker named Thomas Aquinas decided that he wanted to uh, attempt to reconcile as much as was possible Aristotelian thought with Christian thought, as Augustine, in many ways, tried to reconcile much of Plato's thought, okay, with Christian thought. Is everyone with me? So what he did with the Eucharist in particular was he used the hylomorphic theory to explain the Eucharist. But what he said was is that it is the anti-hylomorphic theory. By the power of God's word and the descent of the spirit, the bread and the wine go to naught. They <laughs> no longer exist. They are eradicated. And the substance is replaced by the substance of Christ's body and blood. What remains the same is the what? The accidents. So it looks like bread. It tastes like bread. It has the caloric value of bread. It digests like bread. But in its substance, it is the body of Christ. It looks like wine, it tastes like wine, it smells like wine, it will act like wine in your blood system. It has the caloric value of wine, but its substance has been eradicated. 
It's been overthrown. The substance of wine, according to the Roman dogma, has gone to naught. It no longer exists. It's been replaced by the substance of Christ's blood. Why did he have to go there? Why couldn't he have just kept what made him choose to go anti-hylomorphic? Well, I like that term, anti-hylomorphic. You went anti-hylomorphic on us. Um, I kind of like that. Um, he was attempting to, Thomism is a, in many ways is an attempt to reconcile Aristotelian philosophy, which was newly discovered in the, the big thing in Europe uh, by the Muslims bringing it through Spain uh, with Christian thought. And this was as close as he could get to explaining it. So instead of going anti, he could have kept polymorphic and then he wouldn't have had to go to transubstantiation, right? Well, right. And that's what we would say. If it's a mystery... Why try to explain it in philosophical terms? Well, not only did Rome try to explain it through Thomas's thought in um, these, these terms, but they actually, so they attempted to explain the unexplainable, okay, it's a mystery, but they actually then made it into a dogma and said, all must believe this, okay. What's the problem with bread and wine going to naught and being replaced completely, 100% by two different, uh, the substance of Christ's body and blood? What's the problem with it going to naught? The incarnation goes away. Yep. It's monophysitism. <laughs> the idea that the humanity of Christ is overthrown by his divinity. Uh, that the humanity is absorbed into the divinity. That's an ancient heresy called monophysitism. God doesn't overthrow the creation. He enters into the creation and joins himself to the creation. He manifests himself through the created order, not in opposition to it or by eradicating it. He makes it more fully something, not less. Okay? And so it really is, is uh, you know, heretical. Now, can you dance around with every, You can dance around anything and come up. But, you know, the Anglican position would be, look, a sacrament is where the outward invisible signs of creation manifest a inward and spiritual reality. So when you receive the consecrated bread and wine... You receive spiritually, and when we say spiritually, we don't mean in any fantasy way. You receive spiritually the body and blood of Christ. When you are baptized into the sanctified waters, you actually are being born again into Christ, into his life, death, and resurrection, which we'll talk about more next time when we look at baptism. So I would say that this passage here in 1 Corinthians is both clear, if you're going to hold a biblical position, that it is neither symbolic, in fact, far more than being a symbol, he uses the most intimate way uh, of articulating the union, where two are no longer two but one. Um, And yet he also would deny transubstantiation here as well, and would say that it is bread, it is wine, it is the body and blood of Christ. Because what we, it is intimately united. The cup that we bless is a koinonia with the blood of Christ. So it is wine, 
but it's intimately joined so that the two are no longer two but one. So it's like trying to, yeah, right. It's like trying to, yeah, argue over which side of a quarter is 25 cents or something. Okay. <laughs> um, so it both denies, I would argue, transubstantiation or any idea of memorialism, that it's simply a symbol of, of Christ. Paul goes on to say, because there is one bread, again referring to it as, as bread, but certainly no ordinary bread, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Okay, um, And so the body of Christ is one of the ways that we are joined as the family of God together as one body, okay? We're not just spiritually the body of Christ, right? We have to be partaking to be realizing that, living it out, nourishing it, and, and so forth and so on. Um, I want to uh, jump now to chapter 11, verse 23. Chapter 11, verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now this is a marvel. This is a marvel. How many conversations did Paul the Apostle have with Jesus during his earthly ministry? Huh? Zero. He didn't know him as far as we know doesn't say that he ever had a conversation with Jesus before his crucifixion and resurrection. He encounters him on the road to Damascus where he encounters the risen and glorified Christ. Okay? Where Jesus also makes clear how intimately joined the bride is to the groom because he says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And, Jesus, and Paul's like, eh, not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your church, right? Yeah. Why are you persecuting me? Okay, because to persecute the church is to persecute him. It doesn't say that Jesus said anything to Paul on the road to Damascus about the doctrine of the sacrament of his body and blood. Okay? Um, but Paul does make reference to some mystical encounters with the risen Christ. We don't know the content of these conversations that he had with Christ, except we're about to learn what some of it was. Okay, He tells us that he has received from the Lord himself what he is now delivering to the church. I have received this from Jesus, and I am now giving this to you as the doctrine for the church. Now, do you think in these mystical conversations that Paul and Jesus, the glorified and risen Christ, sat around chew chewing the fat? Probably not, right? In other words, Jesus was probably communicating to him some of the great mysteries 
of the faith to be communicated to the church. So, Paul says here, what I have received from the Lord, so the Lord has given this to me, I am now giving this to you. Well, that's a marvel because the way he's received this from the Lord would be in a conversation with the risen and glorified Christ. Okay? And Jesus is saying, I'm giving this to you to give to my church. So verse 23, for what I received from the Lord For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, what's that word there in the Greek? Thanks. Eucharist. Eucharist. And when he had given thanks, Eucharist, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Okay. Um, how many people here have ever taken algebra? What's the word is mean? Equals. Equals. Jesus says, this, this bread, this is my body. This is equals my blood. Well, now, a lot of, in fact, I was just recently at a retreat center um, when I was down for the General Assembly and was reading a, a book written by a Baptist on the, on the Holy Communion, and they actually used this argument. Well, yes, it, I was actually reading it, and it said, yes, Jesus did say this is my body, and this would seem to imply that this bread uh, somehow is a real participation in Christ, um, uh, you know, in a very objective, tangible way. And they said, however, Jesus goes on to clarify by saying, do this in remembrance of me. Thus clearly saying, if you're going to understand this, you have to understand it in the whole, that this is a memorial. Okay. Here's the problem with what they wrote. In the Greek here, The word remembrance is what word? Does anyone know? Anamnesis. Anamnesis. The concept of anamnesis goes back to the Jews. Um, It was a concept that was part of their Seder meal, actually, where they did not see themselves as simply hearers of salvation history and the Passover, but actually believed that by participating in the Passover once a year, that they were what in salvation history in the Passover? Participants. They actually participate in it. So they're not hearers only, they're participants. It's like, I'm not only the hair club president, I'm also a client, okay? We're not only hearers of of salvation history, we're participants. The word anamnesis is the Greek word uh, for remembrance in English, it means when something of the past, something of salvation history, breaks into the present and becomes a reality for you. A good example that I use that is we've all played with Legos. If I had a bunch of Legos here, and I do have Legos, but, and I built a tower, 
that tower is now a reality for you, right? You see the tower. If I dismember the tower, taking each Lego off, each member, it is no longer present. If I remember the tower, it is now a present reality for you. That's what the word anamnesis means, okay? That's what the word anamnesis. It's not simply a recollection or a fond memory. Oh, I remember my prom. Actually, that wasn't a fond memory. I can't believe she did that. Anyway, um, right? Um, it's not just recollection. It actually is participation. It actually is something in salvation history in the past breaking into the moment. Okay? It's not that moment shooting you back to the past. It's that moment breaking into the present. Okay? And the Nisa. So when Jesus says, this is my body, do this in anamnesis of me, he is saying, this is my body, which will be really actually present for you when you do this. Okay. So rather than lessen the argument, the use of Paul's words, Jesus' words of anamnesis, Far, it, it, it far more greatly strengthens the argument that Christ is present. Now take the word koinonia and anamnesis together, and what do you have? The body and blood of Christ, his sacrifice and resurrection, parts of the pinnacle parts of our salvation history, becoming a present reality for us in the moment, through which we who are the bride of Christ are joined so intimately to Christ himself that we become what we eat, the body of Christ. Okay. Um, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in anamnesis of me. Again, Paul didn't make this up. The early church fathers didn't make up anamnesis. The concept existed prior to Christianity. In the same way also, the cup after supper, again, I'll point that out, that it's important that it's after supper as to which, which cup he, he takes. Okay, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That is the covenant itself, which is our relationship between God and us, is being established in his blood. Now, what's another covenant? Someone name another covenant. Marriage. Marriage, Marriage is a covenant, right? Between a groom and a bride. The covenant between God and Israel is referred to several times in the Old Testament as a relationship between a groom and a bride. And so Jesus is saying, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. That is our relationship between me as groom and you as bride is established in this blood. Okay. Uh, again, you see, and I don't mean anything funny about this, the sexual 
content there, that we are spiritually joined to Christ as collectively the bride, he in and of himself the groom, and then that spiritual marriage with Christ is then lived out, expressed, nourished, nurtured, realized, manifested, strengthened, uh, lived out, etc., through Holy Communion. Um, this is the doctrine of the patristic church because it's the biblical doctrine, okay? Um, that to receive the bread and wine which is blessed and broken on the holy table is to participate in Actually, it's already when it's blessed and broken a participation in. So to receive it then is to actually participate intimately like a man and a woman coming together in, in intercourse intimately in Christ. Intimately in Christ. Now the whole meal aspect, which has been the emphasis since the 1960s, let's gather around and have a meal with Jesus, okay, does have its place too. And you, again, have to not only understand the Greek words here, you've got to go back into that culture. Um, as I was sharing earlier, I think with the staff, I don't think it was in this class, when I was in Malawi with Christine, because I thought the bishop asked for missionaries to Maui, so I raised my hand and I ended up in Africa, um, in Malawi, not Maui. Anyway, next time I'll listen more carefully. Um, when we were over there, we were in villages where the people literally were starving. They were living off something which they called, I believe, if I remember correctly, mesa, um, which is paste, basically. Um, and in a few of the villages, they had like one chicken left. And they would kill that chicken, what do you think, for their children, for themselves, for the sick? Who do you think they'd kill the chicken for? For the guest. For Christine and I. And then they would sit at our feet while we ate the chicken. And do you think they were mortified to be sitting on the ground while we sat in chairs eating the chicken? They couldn't be happier. We were mortified. It was very hard to do. And as I shared with the staff earlier, the chicken itself had very little meat on it because it was rather starved. Um, and um, um, I was invoking Colonel Sanders, but nothing happened. Uh, um, um, the idea of showing hospitality was a great form of intimacy, of sharing a meal. There was considered nothing more intimate outside of relations between a husband and a wife than to share oneself by sharing what you have with the stranger. Hospitality was the highest form. There are tribes in Africa, for example, they say this is true. I don't see how it's humanly possible, but they say it's true that if a man was out with his tribe and got lost and couldn't make his way home, he could be found starved to death, having died from not eaten, though on his person they'd find lots of food. 
Why would he be found starved to death? Because he won't eat a meal unless he can share it with another. Now, I'll, I'll let you work on that one psychologically. I'd be like, well, I'll have my part and your part. I'd go right back to the imaginary friend deals of when we were kids. Um, but anyway, this is the idea from that culture, is that it was considered great intimacy to invite someone to your table. This is why they're mortified when they said, Jesus is eating with sinners because he was sharing a high level of fellowship with them by going to their table. Just think, Jesus invites us as broken, fallen, sinful as we are, he invites us to his table. So there is something to the whole meal thing of it too, okay? Um, but I don't want to also lose sight of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 um, either. Um, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in anamnesis, remembrance of me. If you listen to me say uh, remembrance, at the altar, often I will mispronounce it intentionally and say remembrance because of that idea of anamnesis as to remember as opposed to dismember. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, again, let's understand proclamation. This is the food of the new kingdom, the new covenant. When a king um, thinks of a decree, it doesn't become reality until it's what? Proclaimed. proclaimed. Right, until it's proclaimed. Once it's proclaimed, it is the law of the land. It is the reality of the land, of the kingdom. And its authority comes from its proclamation. Okay? This is why we also proclaim the gospel. But, the, but by doing what we do, we are also proclaiming, that is, making a reality into this world now, the death of Jesus until we see the full fruition and completion of what he has accomplished on the cross at his second coming. So his cross is not redone every time there's a Eucharist. It's not a re-sacrifice. It's the one proclamation, the one sacrifice of Christ being made present at every Eucharist. It's not a re-sacrifice, okay? Which is something that the Roman Catholic Church taught, by the way, and that we reject, okay? It is the one sacrifice being made present forever until the second coming. Otherwise, you have the atonement of Jesus here, and that's great, and then you have you know, nothing until his second coming when you finally get the fruit of what took place over there. And Jesus says, no, it, it's for every day. It's for every day. My cross is present every day through the fellowship of the church, through absolution, through 
ministry, through, but in a special way through the uh, Holy Communion. By the way, this is what the scriptures say. When did, um, when did the whole concept of, um, I mean, you can, one time or another, you can find almost any concept, uh, but when did it really come in that, well, wait a minute, we, we, we believe it's just a symbol, just a memorial. If you were to go back in time to um, uh, 100 A.D., would you be able to find a church that believed it was just a memorial? Absolutely not. What if you went to 500 A.D.? Would you find it? You say, I want to go to church on Sunday, but I want to go to a church that doesn't believe that in the sacrament, that it's just a symbol, it's just a memorial. That They don't believe that what they're blessing and breaking is a koinonia, as Father Michael was explaining. Is there anywhere for you to go in the world? Absolutely nowhere. What if you go to 1500 A.D. Nowhere. Uh, even Luther, and I would argue Calvin, didn't wander, Calvin didn't wander too far. I don't think Luther wandered far at all. But, you know, even the two greatest of the Reformers didn't really wander uh, from this. Um, John and Charles Wesley certainly didn't. They had a very high view of the sacrament. And so this, this idea that we are not participating and being fed with the body and blood of Jesus is something that in the course of history is relatively new. Is relatively new. This is, what I'm articulating, the Christian faith from the time of our Lord and the Holy Apostles and the time of the New Testament and the apostolic era and in the historic church to the present day regarding the sacrament. Now let's look at um, John chapter 6. I'll give you the verse in a second. Let's start at verse 40. What's that? No, 47. John chapter 6, verse 47. We don't have time to... I'm give you the context here. Jesus is speaking quite a bit about the event of the resurrection on the last day, the general resurrection. So we have to understand that context here. Okay, he's speaking quite a bit about the resurrection. Okay. Um, Verse 47. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Oh, my goodness, I forgot parts in 1 Corinthians. Don't flip back. I'll just read it to you. I can't believe I forgot it. Sorry. Um, So proclamation, verse 27 in chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. Whoever therefore eats this bread, again, notice he does refer to it as bread. Bread and wine have not gone to naught. Okay, monophysitism. We want no monophysitism around here. I'm very, I, I, you know, careful about that. 
I think you were spouting some monophysitism the other day. All right. Um, I actually love that word. It's actually my favorite heresy, by the way, monophysitism. But um, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup. So notice that it is, you know, bread, but, okay, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. They're not guilty of, uh, of sinning against the symbol of Christ's body and blood. Their guilt, their sin, is disrespect towards what? The body and blood of Jesus, not the symbol of it. So if you receive this in an unworthy manner, and he'll go on to explain what that is, I would say not being baptized, not examining your sins, asking God for forgiveness and everything else that's printed every week in the, the thing. If you do that, you have sinned against the person and life of Jesus. Wow. That's why when people say to me, well, you're not very nice in your church because you tell people that they shouldn't receive communion if they're not baptized. Or they shouldn't receive communion if they don't believe like you do. Or they shouldn't receive communion if they haven't you know, confessed their sins and asked for forgiveness. So you're not very nice. Actually, why do I do that? To be nice. To protect them. That's exactly right. To protect them. Um, being nice. So I am nice. That's what I think. Um, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, so it's not ordinary bread, but the cup of the Lord, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Now what's interesting there is that I would argue, most of the authors I have read would say that while there is some reference here to discerning by faith, exactly what it is we believe, that the bread that we break and the cup that we bless is a koinonia in the body and blood of Christ, that this is also the whole context here of chapter 10 and 11 is understanding ourselves as part of the one body. So it's also discerning what it means, to discerning the body that we are the church, okay? We are the bride of Christ. We are becoming one with Christ through this, okay? Um, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Okay. Um, so it's a dangerous thing because there's great grace, power in the sacrament. If I give Sarah, <laughs> let's make it Rebecca, she'd have more fun. If I give Rebecca when she's 16 an identical replica of the greatest car that ever existed in the world that my wife made me give up. Was it red? It was red. It was. Uh, okay. If I give that to Rebecca, that can either be what? A blessing or a... It's not a trick question. Curse. Curse. Right? If she abuses it, it's very, a car is a very powerful thing. Right? It can be either very good or it can be your death or the death of someone else. It's a very powerful thing. What Paul is saying is, look, far from being a symbol, the body and blood of Jesus, hello, 
if you use that terminology, hello, is a very powerful thing. It can be to your benefit or to your detriment. But it's not something you mess with, folks. It's very, very powerful. It is a gift, just as uh, the gift of, of sex is a good thing, but it's a very powerful thing. It has the power to also not only edify and nurture and nourish, but to destroy us or wound us physically, spiritually, emotionally, and or psychologically. If we use it, it's like giving a car and saying there's no rules, right? That, you know, it's going to be dangerous. So it's a very powerful gift. It's far from a symbol. And then he goes on to say, drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. When's the last time a symbol killed you? Okay. What Paul is saying is, take this very seriously. So when you look at chapter 10 or 11, there's no way I would argue to have a, well, in the early church would argue, and the subsequent church of every age would argue, there's no way to have a biblical position regarding the sacrament without believing that the bread that we break and the cup that we bless, the bread and the wine, though bread and wine, is a koinonia, a most intimate fellowship, communion, participation in the actual literal body, person, blood, life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now John, chapter 6. Here go my buddies. Okay. Um, verse 47, true, Jesus says, Truly, truly, remember it's the context now of the resurrection. We were just talking about Eucharist being a participation in the death of Christ too, and it was the emphasis, proclaiming his death, which is the forgiveness of the world and, and all of that. But now remember there's a lot of resurrection here. Jesus says, truly, truly. So, you know, he's like, really, really? Okay. Truly, not one truly, two trulys. I actually prefer the King James, verily, verily. I love that. Through the snow to grandmother's house. Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am, someone's favorite, I am the bread of life. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's equating himself with the bread of life. I am the bread of life. The bread of life is me. Okay, so then the question becomes, well, what is the bread of life? Jesus says, look, what I'm saying is true, truly, truly. You have to believe this. Then he says, I am the bread of life. So he equates himself with the bread of life. So then the question becomes, all right, this is true. We must believe this. He is the bread of life. What's the obvious question? What is the bread of life? He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. So if anything was a symbol of the real thing to come, it was the manna in the desert, not what Jesus gives us. 
Just as the sacrifices in the temples were symbols pointing to the one true sacrifice that would atone for sins. He's the real thing. Although I do prefer Pepsi over Coke, I'm going to have to go with Coke in this because for the analogy to work, he's the real thing. What's symbolic or in part or foreshadowing in the Old Testament is, comes in reality in Jesus. Okay, So he says, look, your fathers ate that bread and they died. But this bread which comes down from heaven. Now he says, I am the bread which comes down to heaven for a minute, uh, in a minute. Remember, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Coincidence? What does Bethlehem mean in Hebrew? House of bread. It means tabernacle of bread. And then he is born in the tabernacle of bread, in the house of bread. Jesus later says, I am the bread which has come down from heaven. He's born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And what is he placed in? Uh, right, a, a manger, which is a what? A feeding trough. From the same word as manger, which is to eat. The bread of life has come down to the house of bread. It's placed in a manger, which means to eat, to partake of. We are to partake of him who is the living bread. Jesus says, verse 50, This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. So this is a participation. When we receive Holy Communion, we are receiving the benefits of his death, which is what? What's the benefits of Christ's death? Right, our forgiveness, our atonement, right? So we're partaking in eternal life. So though we may, unless the Lord comes in glory before our physical death, though we die, we shall not die. He who believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? To Martha, do you believe this? That a man may eat of it and not die. So what is the living bread? Jesus says, verse 51, I am the living bread. All right, Lord, you've said that twice. I am the living bread, so the living bread is you. You equate yourself with the living bread, and living bread can be equated with you. We know it's related like God gave bread before to the old covenant people, but they still died. You're talking about this bread that's going to be you that we're going to partake in and never die. All right, you've said it twice now. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. Okay, we, we got that. And the manna fell from heaven, right? And Jesus is saying, I am the living bread. I've come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. All right, well, that makes sense. It's living bread. It's life-giving bread. Jesus equates himself with it. Jesus is the Lord of life. He's life himself having come among us, right? So, okay, we, we get that. We get that, Lord. Um, if we eat of this bread, we'll live forever because it's life. You're life. You're the bread. We eat of the bread. We live forever because the bread is you and we partake in of you. We get it. But what, again, Lord, we're going to ask, what exactly is the living bread? And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is algebra, my flesh.
The low church Anglicans and Protestants then disputed among themselves, saying, (laughs) How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're taking him literally. Note that Jesus later doesn't say when they walk away, Wait a minute, wait a minute, guys, 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 you're taking me far too literally. You're only going away because you're upset because you think I mean this literally. Don't go away. I don't mean it literally. Jesus doesn't say that. They're taking him literally because he means it literally. And they're offended by it. The bread, why are you going to give it? I'll give it for the life of the world. What is it? It is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, there it is again. In case you missed it the first time, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Why? Because Jesus is life. And you can't just be married, right? That marriage has to be nourished, strengthened, lived out, right? You must be fed, Right? You must be fed. You must be nourished. A child can't be born and then not fed. So if you want to use the analogy that baptism is spiritual birth, you can't be spiritually born and not be spiritually fed. Um, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Why? Because he is life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there's that connection. I am the living bread. The living bread is me. I am the living bread. If you partake of it, you'll have eternal life. What is the living bread? It's what I give for the life of the world. We'll ask again, what's the living bread? It is my flesh. To partake of it is is to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this will prepare you, as St. Ignatius wrote in 107, it's the medicine of immortality. It's not only a participation in salvation history that way and the cross, but this way. It is also part of what gets us up on the last day. By partaking in him, I will raise you up on the last day. So, I mean, it's all, it's, it's all of time coming. It's the cross to the second coming of Jesus coming into your hand when you're receiving him. Wild stuff. Okay. Um, and I will raise him up on the last day. But then Jesus goes on to say, in case they misunderstood him for the 1,000th time, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. But in case you still don't understand, let me say it this way. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That word abide being very close to koinonia, to commune with. Okay? So we are in Christ and Christ in us. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. So the Father sends Jesus into the world, born in Bethlehem in a feeding trough, so we, by partaking in him, can live forever. So he lives eternally because of the Father, and he's going to connect us to that eternal life by bringing us into him. 
Um, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate, you know, the symbolic stuff, and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, this was pretty much freaking them out because they were taking him literally, and Jews had a blood phobia, okay? They're really, blood for them was life, okay? You could not touch like blood and be considered clean and all that, okay? But except when it came to atonement, the idea is the blood of animals would cleanse you from your sins because blood was life, okay? Um, But you don't drink um, blood. In other words, they want it symbolically. Um, Many of his disciples, when they heard it, that is, this teaching, said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So in other words, Lord, we're taking you literally here. We've been your disciples, but you know what? You've gone too far. You've gone too far. We can't accept this. Okay, and in other words, they're with him as long as they can swallow what he is saying. Okay, Peter's going to turn it around and say, look, I don't have to understand or agree with what you're saying to believe it. You're the Lord. You have the words of everlasting life. So I will believe it and accept it and then try to understand it and grow in faith. But I believe first and foremost, you are the Lord and you have the words of everlasting life. Therefore, I will believe it. They're saying we will follow you as long as what you say is something we can first believe. I got to tell you, there's a lot of times in my life and probably in your life when you're just like that. I'll follow the Lord in all things as long as it's palatable to me. But when he's calling me to do something a little bit outside, now, come on, Lord, where Peter's answer is, You know what? I mean, this is Peter. This is a paraphrase now. You know what, Lord? I I understand why they're walking away. I don't don't get this either. Guys, do you get them? We don't get this. But, 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 we're not going to go anywhere. You're the Lord. You have the words of everlasting life. So we believe your word. We accept it. Then we seek to understand it. Not we have to understand it before we believe it. So it says, many of his disciples, these were disciples, these were followers of Jesus. These weren't just people hanging out with him that day. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Some translations say, who can understand it? Okay. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Okay. In other words, the word that you receive is not the wisdom of this world. This is the wisdom of God. I'm the Lord. I've come, in other words, what he's saying is I've come from heaven to give you these words which are life-giving words, spirit and life. They're life-giving words. If you want to hold on to the flesh, as Paul uses flesh too, it's, it's, that's your life apart from, from Christ, the flesh, the fallen, broken, sinful self. If you want to follow the ways of the flesh, you're going to inherit nothing. 
if you want to receive me, I've come from heaven to give this testimony, then you will live. It's words of spirit in life. Um, but there are some of you that do not believe, for Jesus knew from the first those who those were that did not believe in who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father, by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're taking me far too literally, guys. And Jesus said to the twelve, I always imagined him here being so sad seeing those other disciples walk away. Do you also wish to go away? I always picture that one of the saddest lines. He just says with a broken heart, are you going to reject me too? because you can't accept this? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, yeah, we don't get it. We believe it anyway, and then we'll seek to understand it. We don't have to understand it before we believe it. All right, before we turn to Luke, uh, questions, thoughts, challenges? No. Anyone else? Yeah. I may um, redo the schedule again and put baptism in on one of the less important, uh, like one of the less important themes, just eradicate it monophysitism, and replace it with the substance of baptism and do part two of Eucharist next time, only because we're still doing the, the scriptures here, and we got this and this to do, and, um, and we're not done with the scriptures. And I do want to actually end a little bit early, because I find it, even with all these doors open, rather stuffy and uncomfortable in here. Let's look at, uh, well, before we do Luke 24, I, I would like... Um, for um, for other other questions or or thoughts or challenges, I think it's important. I have one quick question: um, How do you reconcile you know, what we're we're talking about with the thief on the cross, being that truly truly you, you will see me today, and, and and the thief who hadn't received communion or who hadn't been baptized? Because um, that's the argument that I hear constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Where does he tell the thief he's going to be? You'll be with me in heaven. Read the text. You'll be with me in paradise. That's different. Paradise was the place of the dead. It was Hades. In other words, this day you'll be with me. Paradise, in the Jewish context, there was Hades. And there, those who died believing in the promise of God and the covenant were in uptown Hades, known as paradise. It was also called the bosom of Abraham. Then there was this great gulf. We see this in the story that Jesus tells about the poor beggar Lazarus who dies. And then there's downtown Hades, where the rich man goes in that particular story that Jesus tells, um, where he's in downtown Hades. Um, he's uh, he's um, not actually in Gehenna. He's, he's, he's in the place of the dead. Paradise, or the bosom of Abraham, was, was the place of the dead. Um, and so what Jesus was saying to him is, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Because Jesus did not go to heaven when he died. When Jesus rose from the dead, 
He says to Mary Magdalene, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So Jesus hadn't even gone to heaven. Jesus didn't ascend when he died. He descended when he died. Um, I used to hear that argument quite, quite a bit um, as, as well, and it forced me to do a whole lot of research uh, on it. Um, but yeah, Jesus and the, and the repentant thief. People always call him the good thief. I think that's funny. If he was a good thief, he wouldn't be there being crucified. He would have got away with it. But, um, so he wasn't a good thief. He was a repentant thief. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, with Jesus, he doesn't say I'll be. In fact, um, uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly once, uh, I was forced to watch it, Sandra. Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> Bill O'Reilly once um, <clears throat> uh, had this question, and it said something about... Um, Someone wrote and said, um, there's no mention of anyone being in heaven apart from Jesus himself in the New Testament um, at this time. It's not till after the second coming. And, uh, and he said, and if you, because Bill O'Reilly made some mention about people being in heaven, someone wrote an email. So he says, if you can prove that it says that in the New Testament, I'll give you $10,000. And Bill O'Reilly said, well, Mark, or whoever it was that wrote it, well, Mark, he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. You can make the check out to Bill O'Reilly, you know, and da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, uh, you know, um, Bill was wrong. <laughs> Often wrong. Bill, Bill was wrong. And, and that's just a misconception by Roman Catholics and Evangelicals and Anglican all the time. But the easiest way around it is because people are baffled by the whole Hades thing. We really have done a, a, a run around the whole ancient concept and biblical concept of the place of the dead. Now you either go up or you go down. You're either in heaven or hell, which makes the whole general resurrection and judgment on the last day a whole stupid event. You know. <laughs> so anyway, um, but the easier way is rather than do that is simply point out that Jesus could not have met heaven because he himself did not go to heaven when he died. He didn't ascend, he descended. And then that's the, a good way of doing that. It's oh, is it? Yeah, it's really worth looking at. We looked at it years ago uh, when we were at 116 Union Street, and I've always thought, wow, we've got to do it again because it was so good. Um, it's a, a, a video put out by the Jews for Jesus um, called Christ in the Passover. The author is a man by the name of... Oh, it's not Rosen? Rosen. Rosen. Uh, a man by the name of Rosen. And um, I like the video better than the book. People always say, oh, the movie was, wasn't as good as the book. Well, in this case, I think. Um, but anyway, it's worth looking at. And we did it like in an hour. It's not a forever. It's not like... A mini-series or anything. But it just explains, like, when Jesus takes that particular cup, that has real meaning. Paul's going out of his way to say, after supper, he took the cup. This is a particular cup that he's taking and what the symbolism of that is and, and so forth and so on. Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, and, and I think that it's far from a symbol, as we have seen. Uh, it's far from symbolism. But it is a, a, a real spiritual partaking in the glorified and risen Christ. You're not feeding on a dead carcass. You're feeding on the, the living Jesus Christ. 
the eternal Lord and you're feeding on him eternally. I mean, it's incredible. God doesn't just say, come to me, and he doesn't just come to us. He actually allows us to partake of him, and he is eternal life. We become partakers in God. Um, uh, but again, by, by grace. But unfortunately, when you use the word spiritual, people think you mean fantasy or symbolic. Like People will say, do you literally believe you're receiving the body and blood of Jesus? Yes. Oh, but in a spiritual way. Oh, we're like you. Yeah, it's a symbol. No, no, you're not like me. That's not what I believe. That's not what the church has ever believed. You know, that's not what the, the scriptural witness or the patristic witness bears to. It really is a literal partaking in the person of Jesus, his body, person, his blood, his life. But it is the, the living Christ that we're partaking of, you, you know, in the benefits of his death and, and resurrection. Just as you are literally a new creation in Christ. But if you put yourself under a microscope, if you got hit by a bus at the same time as a Muslim, okay, um, and I was, what do you call those people that do all the work that chop you up and check you out after you're dead? Coroner. Yeah, coroner. Thank you, coroner. And, uh, and I was the coroner, and I cut the Muslim open, and then I cut you open. Do you look any different? Nope, you look exactly the same. Yet, you are radically different, and not in a symbolic way, in a real spiritual way that actually is fully united to your physical person. Your soul isn't just a new creation. You yourself are a new creation in Christ. You, you see what I mean? I just... I, I mean, you cut Jesus, he bled. Yeah. And he was, you know, uh, I mean... Well, I just, I was going to say, I... Didn't look any different than us, and he was God. In school the other day, um, some, you know, handing out everything left and right, but some guy was handing out uh, uh, little papers. I think he saw I was wearing the cross, and so he made a point to give one to me because it was, a, it was supposed to be a meeting of uh, Christians on campus was actually the name of it. And I didn't go because it wasn't the day I had class. But um, on the back, I read it, and it was very... Uh, we, we know another guy who's very much into this kind of thing, very, I don't want to just say charismatic, but kind of new agey charismatic. Like, new agey charismatic. <laughs> it's an interesting charismatic. All about the pure, uh, you know, Christ. It was all about Christ is in you 100%, lives through you, and it actually said Christ is God, so therefore, if you're a Christian, the, full, the fullness of God works through you. That kind of thing, you know, you know, they're on to it. But anyways, he said, uh, this is what it means. If you're a Christian, you live and breathe Christ every day in everything that you're doing. This is what it means to eat and drink him. And yeah. I would just say, you know, like, why would he bother with the bread and wine thing? Yeah. And, you know, the fact is, if you read the early church fathers, if some say, well... Um, John chapter 6 only is a reference only to the sacrament. And if you had others that say, no, he's referring to a spiritual participation in him, you know, by being in him and receiving his word. The answer is yes. The fathers didn't say that one is incompatible with the other. They would say the answer is absolutely yes. 
what I find interesting in some uh, people I have known, family and friends, who will say, well, you know our problem with you, you say you're a biblical Christian, but you don't take the Bible literally. And I say, well, I do, it's just not always at the surface level. You know, sometimes the life of the ocean is found in its depth and not always on, you know, the, the surface. But anyway, they say, no, you don't take it to literally. We believe what it says and, what's the phrase? We believe what it says and, I, I don't know. But anyway, it, well, inerrant, but there's a, like a bumper sticker that a lot of them have that. Oh, I believe he said it, I believe it, therefore it's true or something. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And so they, you know, so they say all that. So they're like, all right, we take it, you know, absolutely literally, word for word on the surface level. You don't do that, da, 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 da. So that, you know, and they'll say, like, God didn't create the world in seven days. He created it in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. See, we take it literally. So I say, okay. What about John chapter 6? Oh, well, that's symbolic. (laughs) And that just baffles me. So everything is literal except for John chapter 6. And then I said, no, I mean, come on, there's clearly things in the Bible that are not meant to be literal. I mean, in the Psalms, when God says, I threw down my sandal on Edom, that must have been some big sandal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, yeah, Karen? Yes, yeah, we are going to get into that very much. If not today, then the next time. That's why I'm going to have to probably, because there's just no way to get through this all in, in one thing. But yeah, we, 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 there's never been, I mean, a simple answer, and then we'll, we'll unpack it later um, or next time, is the, the simple answer is that there, uh, there has never been a time in the church um, where east or west, where... Um, it wasn't the bishop or those ordained by the bishop, the, the priests, um, who presided at the Eucharist. Um, and, uh, um, and then it was considered the words of Christ and the power of the Spirit that changed it. So, you know, if you're going to get technical with the word substance, this phrase doesn't work, okay? I only say that because there, one time I said this and, and a young woman said, well, technically this you know, can't be true, and it was your daughter. So... Uh, but I always thought this was really good, except it didn't work on Hillary. But it said, um, it's not so much about a change in substance as it is a substantial change. Now she said, well, technically that can't be true. But the, and I, I, you know, in other words, there is something far more than symbolism going on here. I mean, there is a substantial change but it's not so much about substance being eradicated or you know anything like that. That's why the Anglican formularies, if we get to them, um, actually say that <clears throat> while we affirm that Christ is present in the Eucharist and we receive the benefit of his death and resurrection when we partake in it, um, we deny transubstantiation because transubstantiation overthroweth the very nature of a sacrament. And what they mean by that, a lot of people read that today and go, what? But what they mean is that a sacrament is incarnational. God communicating himself through the created order, not in opposition to it or by eradicating it. You know? So if bread and wine go to naught, then it's no longer incarnational or sacramental because it's been overthrown.
in front in the choir, I sit close to the table there when you do the blessing. And and to me the the physical fact that you're blessing it with your you you blow on it. I notice that you blow mm-hmm. on it. And I'm thinking about the connection between you being ordained, you blowing on it and, and you having hands laid on you and mm-hmm. other and other That's people the people that have laid hands on the people that laid hands on you mm-hmm. and the car- the carnal nature of that going back to um, yeah. Pentecost. And, and, and I tell people is it's not about Herod, you know, like genealogy. It's a charismatic event. Jesus, not at Pentecost, when they were in the upper room, comes and he breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit for this ministry of reconciliation, whose sins you hold bound or hell bound, whose sins you release are released. Um, and that's been the, the words that have been used in ordination. It's a charismatic event of the first apostles having received the Spirit from Jesus and them celebrating this uh, um, and living it out by doing the same on, on others. Going, I mean, this is a charismatic event within the life of the church. And it's, car- and it's carnal. Yeah. Right, it's incarnational. A person doing it as well as their spirit at the right. connected. Right, and we're going to get into the whole apostolic succession thing. I think it's in two classes from now. We're going to get into to, to all of that because there's a lot of misconceptions on both sides about it. Some people just think, well, what's important is that you're zapped by the right zappers. And that makes it too magical. And yet there is clearly a biblical foundation for it. And so we're, we're going to get into all of that. All right, anyone else? Um, it's not the people that make us Christians at baptism. It's not the people who empower me to be a priest. It's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not the typing of these words that make them the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit. You know, so, you know, as I say, you know, if, um, you know, because the Protestant idea is that people are, uh, someone is ordained, they're empowered by the people, you know, and we would say, well, no, it's what God does through his church, not what they are doing to move towards God. But we'll get into all, all, all of that. Um, So Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Is that clock true up there? So it's only a little bit after two? Okay. I'm not going to promise this, but we may stop at three because it's uncomfortable in here. But if I get carried away... So verse 13, chapter 24. So Christ has died... Christ is risen. <laughs> Christ will come again. Um, and th- so this is the day of Easter. This is the Lord's day. This is the day of, of resurrection. Okay. That very day, what day? Sunday, the day of resurrection. The day Jesus rose from the dead, having descended. <laughs> okay. That very day, two of them we're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. All right, so you have these two men 
Later, one of them is identified as Cleopas. Many scholars believe the other one is Luke himself, okay? Although the person is not identified here. So these two men, it's the day of the resurrection, and they are making a journey. They're setting out on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, on the day of resurrection, on a journey. Um, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So they're sharing fellowship together as they walk, um, where two or three are gathered. And what are they conversing? They are conversing about everything that has transpired concerning Jesus. Okay. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days, there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, And they came back saying that they had even seen vision of angels who said that he was alive. Okay, so first of all, where two or three are gathered, first you have koinonia, you have fellowship. Okay, you're two disciples on the Lord's day, the day of resurrection, and they have come together to make this journey. Into their midst, as they are sharing this fellowship, because Jesus says, when two or three are gathered, I will be in the midst of you, comes Jesus into them. And then they are discussing as they walk the things about Christ's person, death, and at this point, supposed yet to be fully confirmed, because we've only heard from women at this point, right? Back in that day, that wasn't, that wasn't the smartest way to start a religion, was to base it on the testimony of women, which is one of the reasons why I think the gospel is true. Because if they had made it up, there's no way they would have said, I have an idea. Let's have the women that no one's test- whose testimony no one will accept be the primary witnesses to the resurrection. That's a great idea. No, that's a dumb idea. So it's part of the reason why I believe it's true is because they said, look, it wasn't to us, it was to them that he came. All right, walking, and they're discussing these things. All right. Is anyone seeing a little bit what's going on here? Disciples of Christ coming together on the Lord's day, the day of resurrection, sharing fellowship. Christ comes among them in a special way. He's walking with them on this journey and they're sharing together the heart of the gospel, his death and resurrection. Anyone see what's unfolding before you? The mass. Okay. Um, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Sorry, I fell back a page here. Um, 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's that sound like? Well, yeah, and the readings. I mean, he's using the Bible of that time, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and is unpacking it for them. So it's like the readings and, and the sermon. And it is Christ, actually, who is speaking through his word and through the, the sermon here. Okay. Um, so they gather together, disciples of Christ, on the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection. They, Jesus comes into their midst. The scriptures are opened to them. Um, what verse was I on? So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Oh, by the way, why didn't Luke record word for word when he unpacked the Old Testament to them? I mean, the commentary according to Jesus, you know, on the Old Testament. It's like, it's like, come on, man. That's my first question for Luke when I see him. Yeah, I know. Get this down, get this down. (laughs) So they drew near to the village to which uh, they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread. Watch the fourfold action of the Eucharist unfold here to take, to break, to bless, to distribute. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. That's the fourfold action of the Eucharist. Okay. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. So when did they recognize who it was that was among them? in the breaking of the bread. When he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. That's when they recognize the risen Christ is literally among them, opening the scriptures, the word of God to them, and giving them this bread. And they'll go on to explain uh, about it. Um, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished out of their sight. As many of the commentaries of the early church said, because they now had him through the power of his word and in the breaking of the bread. That's how we, and through fellowship, that's how we participate in the risen Christ. So he vanishes because they've come to recognize that it's in the coming together of the church, Koinia Fellowship, and the opening of his word, and by partaking in the uh, bread, the broken bread, 
that they partake in the risen Christ. Um, they said, uh, so he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn within us? This is a prayer that I often try to remember to say before I hear the word of God or the gospel being proclaimed. Is Lord, open my heart. Speak to me as you did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. May my heart burn within me. Burn within me as you open the word to me. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I mean, that, I mean, that is the, the Mass. That's the whole structure of the Mass. The Lord's Day, Christians gather together, and Jesus is present where two or three are gathered in fellowship. The Word of God is open to prepare us to, for His coming anew into our lives through the Eucharist. Our hearts burn within us, um, and then we come to really recognize Him in the breaking of the bread and partake. And those are the three primary ways where still today we actually participate in the life of the risen Christ. Thoughts, questions, reflections, comments, challenges, absurdities, smart questions, dumb questions, dumb questions. <laughs> you know, particularly there, I, I mean, I know it implies intimacy. I, I don't know if it has that, that same context there or not. That I would have to look up. It would be really cool because it would tie into Paul. Who wants to look that up for me? All right. That particular known. That, that's an excellent question. If that known is the same as the other knowns. And we all know what to know means. I'm like, Adam knew Eve. Yeah, I hope so. They were in the garden together. I never understood that as a kid. It's like, of course he knew her. Do you know Eve? Ah, I never heard of her. You mean that woman running around? You guys know that joke where um, uh, Adam comes home and, uh, and Eve says, is that lipstick on your collar? Is that perfume I smell? And he says, what, you got to be kidding me. You're the only woman in the world for me. That's a little joke in itself. But anyway, and then she says, take off your shirt. Let me count your ribs. Get it? I think it's really funny. <laughs> All right. Moving right along. Moving right along. I won't rib you anymore. Okay. Take my wife, please. <laughs> Take my wife, please. Okay. Um, I don't know which way to go. Um, do you want to deal with some of what we've, we have been covering, but then also some of it will be repetitious, but then it goes into how this has been understood in light of you know, Anglicanism and the Church Fathers and you know, things like the 39 Articles where it says Jesus 
you know, did not ordain the sacrament to be lifted up or carried about. So why is it that we lift it up or to be worshipped and adored? So why do we genuflect? And you want to get into that or to have me read to you um, a particular writing by um, John Cozen, Bishop of uh, Durham, who wrote um, on the real presence of Christ. This was John Cozen. is from the 17th century, I believe. Um, he wrote, The history of popish transubstantiation, to which is opposed the Catholic doctrine of the Holy Scripture, the ancient fathers, and the Reformed churches. So which one would you rather hear? The first one? Okay. Some of it's repetitious, but we'll go on. Okay. So this was several years ago. Uh, a fellow priest um, who I came to know came to uh, our church and witnessed the Mass here and, and wrote me a letter, an email, saying, um, that was interesting. Um, he had come out of, I believe, a Baptist background and, and said, uh, so you elevated the Eucharist, uh, you genuflected, da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, how could you do all that when the 39 articles say this, that, and the other thing? So this was, he asked a, a, a one-paragraph question, I sent him 10-page response. Um, be careful what you ask for, you just may get it, but I'm not going to read you all 10 pages. But I began, Scripture. Koinonia. So some of this is repetitive. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10.16. Paul speaks of the bread that we break, the cup that we bless, as a koinonia in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Greek word koinonia means a most intimate communion or fellowship, here translated as participation in the RSV. The Eucharist is clearly a sign as opposed to a symbol as it participates in the spiritual reality to which it points. That is theologically the difference between a, a symbol and a sign, except when you read Paul Tillich who switches them and it becomes very confusing. But a symbol points beyond itself to a greater reality. A sign actually participates in the greater reality to which it points. Is everyone with me? That's the theological difference between a symbol and a sign. Okay. Um, the term koinonia is also used to describe the spiritual union of husband and wife and is the same root as the Greek term used to reference the physical consummation of a man and a woman. Thus, just as, groom, as a groom becomes one body with his bride, so the church, the bride of Christ, becomes one body with the Lord Jesus Christ through this most holy sacrament. The communion is so intimate that the two are no longer two, but one. Paul relates the communion of the person to Christ in the sacrament with the communion of the greater church as the body of Christ. He writes, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, 1 Corinthians ten seventeen. Thus the sacrament is far more than a symbol, that which points to a reality greater than itself, but is a sign that which participates in the greater reality to which it points, serving as a means of grace. This is upheld by Article 25, quote, Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of goodwill towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us, and doth not only quicken, that means to sanctify, but also strengthen, and confirm our faith in him. So obviously there's something going on in the sacrament. Okay. 
The Catechism of 1662 states that the sacraments are ordained of Christ and are generally necessary for salvation, generally meaning for the world, for um, universally necessary, and are, quote, outward and visible signs, not symbols, of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, um, ordained by Christ himself as a means whereby we receive the same and a pledge to assure us thereof. Note the validity of the sacrament is not dependent on faith, though the efficacy of the sacrament is. That is, how it works within the person receiving. For the bread that we break and the cup that we bless is a koinonia with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and is so at the same time, and is so at the time of breaking and blessing. This breaking of the bread and blessing of the cup takes place on the holy table or altar. Thus, it is already the sacrament of Christ's body and blood before it is offered, given to the faithful. However, through the, however, though the sacrament is clearly valid, its benefits are only received for good by the faithful because to their judgment if you receive it unworthily. Is everyone with me with what I wrote this poor guy? Okay. <laughs> it's like, I just asked like a simple question, Michael. Yeah. All right. Scripture 2. Anamnesis. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, in Greek, Eucharist, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 30 Firstly, it is interesting to note that Paul received this teaching from the Lord. Since Paul did not know the historic Jesus, he must have received this teaching during an encounter with the risen Christ. This makes that which follows of particular importance. It was the intention of the risen Lord for Paul to communicate this to his church. Secondly, the term remembrance and amnesis in Greek means far more than a simple conjure up of memories of the past or to replay an event, but for the past event to become a reality in the present. It is a breaking through of the past into the present. This concept predates Christianity and is found in ancient Judaism. To hear the story of the Passover and to participate in the Seder meal, for example, was to participate in the Passover itself. And amnesis is closely related to koinonia. To remember the event is to participate intimately in the event. If something present to you is dismembered, it is no longer a present reality. However, if it is remembered, it becomes a present reality once more. I often use the analogy of Legos. Thus, while there is but, quote, one oblation of himself once offered on the cross, a full, perfect, 
and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the whole world, Eucharistic Prayer 1662, that one perfect sacrifice and the benefits thereof become present for us in the Holy Sacrament. Thirdly, the word proclaim also supports anamnesis. If a messenger of a king proclaims a royal decree within the kingdom, the decree becomes a reality for those who witness it the moment it is proclaimed. There is a clear relationship between the proclamation of the decree and the decree itself. Thus, to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns is to make present the awesome and saving event of the cross present in every generation until the second advent of the Lord. Fourthly, Paul is very clear that to sin against the sacrament is to sin against the very body and blood of Jesus, not the symbol of his body and blood. This is because the sacrament, as a sign, participates in the reality to which it points and bestows grace. The bread and wine, with a capital B and capital W, communicate the body and blood of the Lord. To sin against the sacrament is to sin against the Lord, just as when Saul was persecuting the church, the bride, who is one with her groom, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is, regarding uh, persecuting the church is to persecute Jesus, for the church is one with Christ as the bride of Christ. Lastly, regarding Paul's word, he who uh, he eats and drinks judgment upon himself, it is clear that the sacrament of the holy table is valid, the bread that we break, the cup that we bless. However, its efficacy is dependent upon receiving the sacrament faithfully. One Uh, One either receives in the sacrament the benefit of Christ's body and blood or their own condemnation. Either way, something is bestowed through the sacrament to the communicant. Okay, all review, so hopefully that all sounded very familiar. Three, the fathers. Obviously, quotes from the fathers are extensive, and this email is also long enough, although I was nowhere near the end of it, so... I'm sure you agree with a smiley face. However, I will quote a few of the fathers to support the patristic position regarding the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. A, the heretics abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. Those, therefore, who speak against this gift of God incur death in the midst of their disputes, but it were better for them to treat it with respect that they also might rise again. Ignatius of Antioch, writing in 107 AD during the Apostolic Age. So he's saying it's only heretics who don't believe that it's actually the body and blood of Jesus, okay, and are abstaining from it. B, also... Quote, take heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ in one cup to show forth the unity of his blood. One altar, and I'll point out that the Father uses the word altar here, as there is one bishop along with the presbytery, the priests, and deacons, my fellow servants, that so whatsoever you do, you may do it in according with the will of God. Again, Ignatius 107 A.D. C. Now, as this is a great and wonderful thing, so if thou approach it with pureness, you approach for your salvation, but if with an evil con- conscience for punishment and vengeance. Quote, for it says, 
He that eats and drinks unworthily of the Lord eats and drinks judgment to himself. Since if they who defile the kingly purple are punished equally with those who rend it, it is not unreasonable that they who receive the body with unclean thoughts should suffer the same punishment as those who rent it with the nails. John Chrysostom, writing in the 400s and one of the greatest minds that Christianity has, has known. So uh, a lot of Anglo-Catholics will wrongly say, well, this whole idea of faith participating in it, you know, is you know, made up by the English reformers. John Chrysostom believed in that, that if you receive it by faith, you receive the sacrament to your benefit. If you receive it unworthily, you receive it to your detriment. Okay. Lastly, we do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine. Notice that he still calls it bread and wine, however. We do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine as if it were ordinary food and drink. For we have been taught that it becomes the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus by the power of his own words contained in the prayer of the Eucharist, Justin Martyr, who was writing around 150 A.D. Um, so this shows you know, the received mind of the fathers. They were one in this. Jesus Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. To partake of the consecrated bread and wine is to partake spiritually but truly in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and to receive by faith to your benefit. If I first argued from Scripture and secondly from the Fathers, where am I going to argue thirdly to make this? Well, yeah, the Fathers were more tradition. So Scripture, tradition? No? Anglican formularies and Anglican writers. So the formularies and reformers. Ta-da! One. One, dearly beloved in the Lord, ye that mind to come to the holy communion of the body and blood of our Savior Christ must consider how St. Paul exhorteth all persons diligently to try and examine themselves before they presume to eat of that capital B bread and drink of that cup. For as the benefit is great, if with a true penitent heart and lively faith we receive that holy sacrament, for then we spiritually eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood. Then we dwell in Christ and Christ in us. We are one with Christ and Christ one with us. So is the danger great if we receive the same unworthily. For then we are guilty of the body and blood of Christ our Savior. We eat and drink our own damnation, not considering the Lord's body. Amen. That is from what is one of the formularies? The, 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 the 1662 prayer book, that's what I was just quoting from. The exhortation of the uh, 1662 book of common prayer. Um, okay. Um, I fully believe in the validity of the sacrament on the holy table altar. Why else is there an article of re religion that addresses, quote, of the unworthiness of the ministers, which hinders not the effect of the sacrament? However, as the, article, as the articles do say, as John Chrysostom does say, as Paul himself does say, the efficacy of the sacrament, whether they receive the benefit of the sacrament or partake in judgment, is affected by faith. Obviously, the catechism, the articles, the liturgy itself, proclaims the sacrament to be far more than a symbol, but a partaking in the body and blood of Christ. Number two. 
And we, quote, and we do make no doubt together with the same doctors and fathers to say that in the Lord's Supper there is truly given unto the believing the body and blood of our Lord, the flesh of the Son of God, which quickeneth our souls, the meat that cometh down from heaven, the food of immortality, of grace, truth, and life, and the same supper to be a communion of the body and blood of Christ by the partaking whereof we be revived, we be strengthened, and be fed unto immortality, and whereby we are joined, united, and incorporated unto Christ, that we abide in him and he in us. So this is Anglican formulary, so far more than a symbol. We, so while they rejected transubstantiation, they clearly did not embrace the more radical reform position. Okay? We affirm that the bread and wine are holy and heavenly mysteries, the word mystery in Greek meaning sacrament, of the body and blood of Christ, and that by them Christ himself, being the true bread of eternal life, is so presently given unto us that by faith we verily receive his body and blood. Yet say we not this so as though we thought that the very nature of bread is changed and goeth to nothing, as many have dreamed in these latter times, meaning the Romans. Okay, That's John Jewell, who you all know, because if you're taking this class, you've read John Jewell's Apology of the Church uh, of England. And so that's from uh, John Jewell's Apology. Clearly rejecting both Romanism and the addition to the patristic faith in the sacrament, and rejecting the more extreme reform position of memorialism and symbolism. Okay, John Jewell. John Jewell states, Here my basic belief concerning the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Next, three. Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace, that is, they're efficacious, as signs of grace and of God's goodwill towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. The, the ordinal, the book, uh, Common Prayer, 1662, and what else? Formularies. Right, this is Article 25. So you see I made the argument first from Scripture, then from the Fathers, now I'm making it from the Anglican formularies. The next one. The 1662 Book of Common Prayer lists the sacrament of Christ's body and blood as one of two sacraments that are generally necessary for salvation. Then next, Archbishop Cramner, who was the first Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the English Reformation, who was the first editor of the Book of Common Prayer that came out in 1549. He writes, Come to our Redeemer, come to our Redeemer and Savior Christ, who refresheth all that truly come unto him, be their anguish and heaviness never so great. He it is that feedeth continually all that belong unto him with his own flesh that hanged upon the cross and giveth them drink of the blood flowing out of his side 
and maketh so and maketh to spring within them spiritual waters that floweth unto everlasting life. And that's Cranmer, probably the most reformed uh, person there was. So summary. The Anglican doctrine of the Eucharist must, according to the principles of the English Reformation, be that which is firstly biblical, scriptural being the word of God written, and secondly, patristic. And then we also turn to the formularies. The key in achieving such a position, that is restoring the church to a scriptural and patristic view, is to reject transubstantiation, which overthrows the very nature of a sacrament, while maintaining the clear patristic belief in the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Is everyone with me? Okay. Edward Harold Brown, uh, who lived in, from 1811 to 1891, Bishop of Winchester wrote, This much we must premise as unquestionable. I'm going to read it in an English accent. The whole primitive church evidently believed in a presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So he's saying, look, I mean, this is unquestionable. You read the early church fathers, they all believed that Christ was present in the Eucharist. So this much we premise as unquestionable. The whole primitive church, primitive meaning early, not, you know, inferior, evidently believed in a presence of Christ in the Eucharist. All spoke of feeding there on Christ, eating his body and drinking his blood. So it is clear that a belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is both scriptural and patristic. So I go on to say, thus Brown states the doctrine of the Church of England, quote, the doctrine of a real spiritual presence is the doctrine of the English church. It teaches that Christ is really received by faithful communicants in the Lord's Supper, but that there is no gross or carnal, he's answering Mary here, uh, there's no gross or carnal, but only a spiritual and heavenly presence there. But then note what he says. Not the less real, however, for being spiritual. It teaches, therefore, that the bread and wine are received naturally, but the body and blood of Christ are received spiritually. The result of the result of which doctrine is this. It is bread and it is Christ's body. It is bread in substance by the definition of a sacrament, Christ in sacrament. And Christ is as really given to all that are truly disposed. He goes on to say, while we clearly reject transubstantiation, when we say we believe that he is spiritually and heavenly present, we mean nothing less than they do, that we are being fed by the body and blood of Christ. Okay. This is me now talking. Thus I believe that Christ Jesus is truly and actually present for us in the sacrament of his body and blood, and that we partake in the benefits of his incarnation, death, and resurrection when receiving the holy sacrament by faith, lest we partake in our condemnation. The sacrament is always valid that which takes place on the altar. 
Yet how it manifests itself within the recipient depends on faith. I do not believe that Jesus is present in a corporal or carnal way, but in a spiritual and sacramental way. Not that spiritual means symbolic or mere fantasy. In the sacrament, which is both spiritual and temporal, the spiritual reality is conveyed along with the outward invisible sign. So to receive the consecrated body, uh, to receive the consecrated bread and wine is to receive the body and blood of Christ. Right. Um, the spiritual is conveyed in and through the sacrament, but not necessarily in or through the outward invisible sign, although by the outward invisible sign. So you can't separate them. It's incarnational. We are a body-soul creation. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Okay, so it's, uh, uh, the outward invisible sign conveys the inward and spiritual truth. Rather... Rather, the consecrated bread and wine are a koinonia with and an anamnesis of the body and blood of Christ. Just as the two natures of Christ remain distinct and yet are inseparable in the incarnation, so that we cannot say, I worship, adore only the divine nature or person of Christ and not the human nature of Jesus of Nazareth. That was a question the early church had to deal with. They were like, okay, so he's one person, but he's fully God and fully man. Well, we can't worship the creature. So there were some who were saying, well, we only worship the divine nature of the person of Christ. We don't worship Jesus of Nazareth. And the early church said, once God became man in the person of Christ, though those natures remain distinct, they can never be separated. To know Jesus of Nazareth is to know the living God. You can't say I'm worshiping only the divinity in Jesus, but not the humanity of Jesus. You worship the person who is one person, fully God and fully man. Okay. Um, uh, the sacrament is always valid. I'm sorry, I'm looking rather the consecrated bread and wine. All right, all right, I worship and adore only. So that the bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ remain distinct and yet are inseparable in the consecration, for they are a koinonia and the nisus and proclamation of Christ himself. Just as Christine and I are still distinct and yet we are one, and that oneness, though spiritual, is a reality. It's a reality that we are one. Um, Next. I bow or genuflect to acknowledge in grateful appreciation the presence of Christ Jesus, my Savior, in the sacrament. I don't bow or genuflect to the sacramental bread and wine in and of itself. And and I also do it for a signification of my humble and grateful acknowledgement of the benefits of Christ therein given to all worthy receivers, which is a quote from the Black Rubric. Uh, of the prayer book. So when I am bowing or genuflecting, I'm not bowing or genuflecting to bread and wine. I'm acknowledging that Christ Jesus is present for me in a special way. And if he is here, I'm bowing or genuflecting. Okay. Um, Yeah.
what would you like it to be? <laughs> uh, Bob, can you just move back a little bit there? Uh, I got to sit down for a minute. Um, we're actually going to talk about that in, in this, but I'll, I'll give you a brief introduction. Um, in the time of the Middle Ages, uh, benediction of the Blessed Sacra Sacrament, um, it was originally meant to be an extracurricular activity outside of the Mass as a way of giving thanks to the Lord for the great benefit we receive in the sacrament. It was really like a prayer and praise uh, service, you know, with the sacrament present as a way of thanking God for the great benefits we receive uh, in receiving the sacrament of his body and blood. Well, what it, what it came to be seen, uh, sadly, because of the superstition of the time, was more like uh, an amulet. And people stopped receiving Jesus and were, you know, and were just going to benediction to worship him and adore him. And so uh, at the time of the English Reformation, they were mortified by that because the primary reason why Jesus gave us the sacrament is to receive the sacrament, not to worship him. Um, it's not that acknowledging his presence is wrong, but the primary reason he gave us his, sac his self is to feed on him. You know, you know, I remember being in the seminary, people said if you're stuck on an island and you find a, a consecrated host in a pix, you know, do you consume it or do you put it up the tree and worship it so that you're in the presence of Christ? These Methodists must be freaking right out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, it, you know, and, you know, people are like, oh, of course you consume it. Cause, you know, and other people, no, I want to be in the presence of Christ in a special way. I'm alone on this island and da, 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 da. And I just said, look, I'd break it in half. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> via media, it's the Anglican way, I break it in half. Uh, so um, so for, for a long time, people were very much uh, against that because of the context in Roman Catholicism of the Middle Ages, of Medieval Ages, rather. Well, they, for, for Roman Catholics, it's a devotional. Right, right. So what I tell my priest, in fact, I told them this just today, benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, along with a few other things, can only be done uh, with, with two criteria. Number one, you have to have permission of the diocesan bishop. And number two, there has to be great teaching around it so that people don't misunderstand and fall into superstition or think that they're somehow receiving a greater blessing you know, by going to benediction, then by coming to Mass and receiving Jesus. And so there has to be a lot of teaching. But you also, I would think, it's my opinion, and so I've imposed it upon them in this archdeaconry, because um, we have a tendency to do these things, um, is that we need the permission of the diocesan, you know, bishop as well. So it takes those two things. Um, but we actually get into that in a little bit, so... Okay, um, so I mean the black rubric is often used to, you know, kind of poo-paw the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, so I turned it around and used it here as a way of this is why I, it's supposed to keep us from adoring it, and I'm, this is why I adore and I use the words of the black rubric here. Thus the presence of Christ is communicated in and through the sacrament, but not necessarily in and through the bread and wine itself. However, once consecrated, the bread and wine, though distinct from, 
are also inseparable from the body and blood of Jesus. It comes down to this. I believe Jesus is present in a special way through the proclamation of his holy gospel and in the sacrament of his body and blood. Thus I bow myself in thanksgiving before his presence. Bishop John Cozen, who I'll read to you next time, in his rejection of transubstantiation, upholds the very presence of Christ in the sacrament and and hints at the inseparability of the consecrated bread and wine from the body and blood of Christ. Quote, and indeed, he writes, the words of institution would plainly make it appear to any man that would prefer truth to wrangling, (laughs) I like these guys, Um, to wrangling that it is with the bread that the Lord's body is given, and his blood with the wine. For Christ, having taken, blessed, and broken the bread, said, This is my body. And St. Paul, than whom none could better understand the meaning of Christ, explains it thus, The bread which we break is the koinonia communion or communication of the body of Christ, that whereby his body is given, and the faithful are made partakers of it. That that it was bread which he reached which he reached to I'm sorry that it was bread which he reached to them I don't know what the, what I mean by that I think I'm jumping lines here that it was bread which he reached to them there was no need of any proof the receiver's senses sufficiently convinced them of it oh that it was bread that he reached to them you know it's clear to the apostles who received it that day, because their senses, uh, they didn't need any proof. The receiver's senses sufficiently convinced them of it, but that therewith his body was given, none could have known, had it not been declared by him who is the truth himself. And though by the divine institution and the um, explication of the apostle Paul, every faithful communicant may be as certainly assured that he receives the Lord's, as uh, that he receives the Lord, as to what others say, that is not possible. Others say that it is not possible the words of Christ can be true, but by that conversion which the Church of Rome calls transubstantiation, that is so far from being so. In other words, you don't have to believe in transubstantiation to believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. That is so far from being so that if it were admitted, it would first deny the divine omnipotency as though God were not able to make the body of Christ present and truly to give it in the sacrament while the substance of bread remains. In other words, that's not a big deal for God to communicate the body and blood of his son through bread and wine. I mean, it's very incarnational, you know. Two, it would be inconsistent with the divine benediction which preserves things in their proper being. It would be contrary to the true nature of a sacrament which always consisteth of two parts, that uh, that's tangible of the world and that which is spiritual. Okay. To the sacred records, the Bible, we may we may added the judgment of the primitive church for those orthodox and holy doctors of our holier religion, those great lights of the Catholic Church, do all clearly, constantly, and unanimously conspire in this, that the presence of the body of Christ in the sacrament is only mystic and spiritual. 
as for the entire annihilation of the substance of bread and wine, or that that new and strange tenant of transubstantiation, they did not so much as hear or speak anything of it. Nay, the constant stream of their doctrine doth clearly run against transubstantiation. So Cozen is making the argument that in the early church they clearly believed in the real presence of Christ, but they hadn't even heard of transubstantiation, and that this would have been outside of their mindset because God communicates himself through the uh, material world, not by eradicating it. Someone? Yeah, I, I just was wondering, he was saying it was a new idea, so when did the idea of Around the time of Thomas Aquinas, really, when Aristotelian philosophy was making a comeback. Um, and so early Middle Ages, can you throw out a date, Bob? Uh, 13th century. Yeah, 12-something. So it wasn't known in the undivided church. Yeah. Is, isn't the word in, incarnate, though, imply like a happening to the object that the, the car, carnate part means flesh, right? And well, carnate, but incarnate to dwell in the physical. But either way, it's something happening to the flesh, not the flesh doing something itself. Like, it's right. just what you're saying. Not, right. It doesn't totally become something Right, in in it, right. right to I mean to go up and and grab a hold of Jesus is to embrace the living God, you know, because he's incarnate. Um, in a pamphlet published in two thousand eight by Latimer Press, written by the Reverend Mark Claver, along with the Reverend Doctor Peter Moore, President Emeritus of Trinity School for Ministry and the Right Reverend Bishop Ray Sutton of the Reformed Episcopal Church. So, I mean, this, these are pretty low-church dudes, right? Uh, entitled, entitled, What is Anglicanism? It reads, The spiritual world is not outside our daily experience, since our souls inhabit both flesh and bones. We exist spiritually and physically because we are both spirit and flesh. God feeds... Both parts of us, God feeds us through the Holy Eucharist, for like us, it is both material and spiritual. Anglicans believe that Jesus Christ unquestionably ordained two sacraments, baptism and Holy Eucharist, as regularly, that is generally, necessary for Christian life. God bestows his grace to us through the sacraments. The full prayer book definition of a sacrament is, quote, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself as a means whereby we receive this grace and a pledge to assure us thereof. In other words, Christ himself assures us that when we are baptized or receive the Eucharist or a priest absolves us of our sins, something really happens. And these are as like as evangelical dudes as you get. The promises and presence of God are personally experienced and become real to us in the present. Um, so now me speaking. 
I am in full agreement with the above statement. While God's grace, presence, etc. is not limited to the sacrament, nor confined to or constrained by the sacraments, it is assured and objective within the sacraments themselves to our benefit when we receive by faith. Sacraments are incarnational. There you go, Jordan. Incarnational in that the spiritual is conveyed through the physical. Sacraments are marked moments of God's grace and presence. It is out of awe for such a wonderful mystery and gift that I bow to acknowledge the sacramental presence of my Lord Jesus Christ and the Eucharist, the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine, for they are, quote, means instituted by Christ himself, whereby we receive, and assuredly so, such a heavenly gift. As the exhortation of 1662 states, wherefore it is our duty to render most humble and hearty thanks to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that he hath given his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, not only to die for us, but also to be our spiritual food and sustenance in that holy sacrament, which being so divine and comfortable a thing to them who receive it worthily, and so dangerous to them that will presume to receive it unworthily. Um, and so uh, I'm quoting there that, you know, when I genuflect or bow, it's, it's out of duty that I do this to acknowledge in thanksgiving what God has given. Now, reservation, reserving the sacrament. So reservation, in the early church, the sacrament would be reserved in the tabernacle, but it was primarily for it to be brought to the sick, okay? Um, Deacons from the earliest days of the church would be sent with the sacrament that was consecrated at the Eucharist to be brought out from there to the sick, okay? Um, and over time, as people you know, came to say, well, wow, the tabernacle's here. Jesus is present in a very special way in the sacrament, and it's here. You know, reverence was beginning to be shown towards the presence of Christ reserved in the sacrament. Um, and so he asks about, uh, about this um, because he, uh, um, uh, Article 28, which I'll read to you. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper, this is part of the Anglican formularies now, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. So he's saying, those are one of our formularies, Mike. So, you know, what are you doing up there at Holy Trinity? So I quote the article back to him, and I say, Article 28, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. And then I say, I completely agree. The sacrament was given by our Lord that we might receive the same and the benefits thereof. However, as the Oxford Fathers said in their reading of the articles, the fact that Christ did not command such things does not make such practices evil or contrary to the word of God in and of themselves. I'll give other examples. Christ did not institute which 27 books would be the New Testament, and yet we have them. Christ did not institute that when we baptize, we pour or immerse three times, and yet that's 
how, how we do it. Okay, um, The Bible does not anywhere clearly state that, that the Lord's Day, that the, our Sabbath as Christians, should be on Sunday. So there are many things that are not maybe on the surface level of the Scripture, but are there that the church has received east and west as being congruent with or coming out of the Holy Scriptures, and then at another level, not in contradiction to the Scriptures. Okay? So I said I completely agree. Um, Quote, For the church hath power, this is another article, the church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies, and authority in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything contrary to God's word written. So you can't go against God's word, right? But it doesn't say anywhere that uh, uh, lay people uh, should not wear robes, and it doesn't say anywhere that I should wear purple in Advent. But that's not contrary to the word of God. Okay, Article 20. The Holy Scriptures of the New Testament were not by Christ's ordinance written. Christ never said, I want you to write a New Testament. Show me where he says that in the Bible. Nor was the canon compiled by his command. I want you to write these books, and then I want you to put them together in a canon. Pouring water three times over the person being baptized was also not by Christ's ordinance. However, I would also like to quote Bishop John Rogers concerning the legitimate diversity of interpretation within the 39 articles. He writes, the second objection is that the articles are too restrictive for the Anglo-Catholic stream of our communion. They are a little bit. but Anyway, I would suggest that if that be felt to be true, then let us face that and make such adjustments to the subscription to the articles as will allow Anglo-Catholics to engage in such liturgical actions as they and the local bishop deem fit, so long as these actions are in agreement with the theological intent of the articles and biblical principle. And this guy's a real low churchman, John Rogers. Perhaps this could be done... um, by uh, elucidations, as is often done in ecumenical declarations. This should have been done in the 19th centuries and is long overdue. Our previous failure to address this has led to the neglect of the articles and a a lack of theological discipline on the part of many. Specifically regarding reserving the sacrament. While the sacrament was not ordained by Christ's ordinance reserved, it has been so since the early patristic church, primarily to be brought to the sick and homebound. The reservation of the sacrament is not contrary to Holy Scripture and was and is the received practice of the universal church east and west. Regarding caring about lifted up or worshipped, and this probably will get into your question, Sandra, I believe this is a reference to benediction of the Blessed Sacrament and not to the Eucharistic celebration per se. Obviously, Christ himself lifted up the bread and the cup at the Last Supper and on the road to Emmaus, for he, quote, took bread and he, quote, took the cup. It does not read 
and he touched the bread, or he touched the cup, but rather he took the bread and he took the cup. He also broke the bread, something very difficult to do if it remains on the table. It was also, unless he had one of those, you know, pizza things or whatever, okay. <clears throat> it was also common in Jewish offering to raise the offering to God. I hold the sacrament up for persons to offer thanks in their hearts for the sacramental of Christ and to acknowledge his sacred presence. Quote, they came to know him in the breaking of the bread. Such a gift is not to be hidden away. If the sacrament is a proclamation of the death of Jesus, should not a proclamation be made boldly? Right? Quote, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. If we hold up the gospel book or place it in a place of honor to be seen, should we not hold up the very sacrament of Christ's body and blood? Again, no adoration is given to bread or wine or unto some corporeal presence of Christ. However, we bow ourselves before the spiritual presence of Christ truly and actually given in and through the sacrament. Obviously, the sacrament must be carried about when being brought to the sick. You also can't get from the altar to the communion rail without carrying it about. If Christ did not ordain for it to be carried about, and I guess I'd have to leave it there and say, well, everyone just come up and please help yourself, right? All right, you can't, you know. So when people say we want to take something on the surface level, literally, it gets a little silly after, you know, a while. Um, well, if they weren't being silly, what were they saying? They don't like the, the, the lifting up. They, this is what I believe. There were so many abuses in medieval... Roman Catholicism, that the reformers and English Protestant reformers and then the English reformers and many of our evangelical, more low church brothers and sisters are trying to jealously guard the rightful place of Christ in the church against these things which crept in. And in that, I'm grateful to them and I agree with, with them we must always be aware of these things and not allow it to, to happen, you know, uh, again. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's also a fear that anything that smacks of what happened back then is going to lead to that. And so they quote these things like, don't lift up or carry about. And I'm saying, well, look, you've got to look at the real context here of what it's referring to. You, you, you know, you can't say you absolutely cannot lift up the sacrament. Well, then how do you take it into your hands? Because the rubric says, since the very first prayer book of the English Reformation, the celebrant shall take the bread into his hands. How do you do that? How do you bring it to the communion rail? You, you, you know. So what, as, as opposed to um, the scripture what you're, uh, and, and how one reads and interprets, what you're saying is that the formularies really have to be understood uh, in their historical context um, mm -hmm. and their for the force of their arguments understood in light of that, that context. Right. One would not, our, our, our Episcopal brethren 
make that claim about scripture in its entirety. And then, right, right, right. And we would say that, you know, the, this isn't even at the same level as tradition, let alone Holy Scripture, right. which is, tradition is not at the same level as scripture. Right. So, yeah. so that's, okay, I got it. Definitely a hierarchy okay. here. Okay. And yet at the same time, they shouldn't just easily be dismissed or poo-popped. Right. You know, the 39 articles should be taken seriously. But we have to get at the meaning of them. You know, um, and you know, and that is, they were arguing that we want to stay steer clear of the abuses of medieval Catholicism, and with that, I agree. And that's why I say, the higher church you are, the more teaching you have to do. Okay. Um, Um, where was I? Let's see. Obviously, the sacrament must be carried about when being brought to the sick. Da 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 da. Uh, okay. Um, to quote James DeCoven, there is a sight of Christ crucified given to the faithful, which alone is healing, alone is life giving. It is in that very sacramental bread to which the sinner turns. There is Christ present, not visible to the eye not appreciated by the senses, not in any way carnal or, ma- or material in fashion, but truly, really there, priest in sacrifice, ready to forgive, ready to pardon, ready to help. To come to Holy Communion, beloved, in faith and penitence is to come to Christ. It is to kneel at his feet, to have his hand laid upon you, to be sprinkled with his blood, to be fed with himself. Oh, did we believe this? Could we come to it so carelessly? Could we desire it so seldom? Could we esteem it so lightly? I think those are very powerful words by James DeCoven. At the time of the English Reformation, persons were more concerned with being present at benediction of the Blessed Sacrament than they were to receive the sacrament. The English Reformers rightly called the church back to the very reason for which Christ gave the sacrament, for which it was ordained. Quote, And we justly blame the bishops of Rome, who without the word of God, without the authority of the Holy Fathers, without any example of antiquity, after a new guise, do not only set before the people the sacramental bread to be worshipped as God, but do also carry the same about upon an ambling horse, whithersoever themselves journey, in such sort <coughs> as in old time the Persian fire and the relics of the goddess Isis were solemnly carried about in procession and have brought the sacrament of Christ to be used now as a stage play <coughs> and solemn sight to the end that men's eyes should be fed with nothing else but with mad gazings in foolish gods. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. John Jewell, An Apology of the Church of England. Um, And then I write, Therefore I believe that benediction of the Blessed Sacrament may only be done with the permission of the bishop and after much teaching to avoid such problems. So there we go. I'm going to save this next one till uh, next time. I'm glad that we made it through that, though. We'll just close with any questions, thoughts, challenges.